on a late spring day in 1951. Lottie Appleby was standing in her Harrisburg, Pennsylvania home. She said, I was in the kitchen at the uh, sink, and there were big windows right there at the sink. And uh, she said there was a bird. It kept flying against the window. That's Jane Defina, Lottie's granddaughter. She was about three years old at the time this story starts, and she's heard it several times over the following years. And she said it kept it up, and she said, I said to, to Pap, that's my grandfather, she said, you know, what's with that bird? She said it keeps trying to get at the window, and he said, oh, you know, maybe it's too clean or something, and he said just keeps flying into it. And uh, she said, eventually, she said, we didn't see it. And she said, uh, I went outside, and there on the sidewalk by the, that side of the house, there lay the bird, dead. And she said it wasn't long after that, she said, we get the phone call. The plane, that they had found the wreckage, and there were, you know, nobody survived. The wreckage Defina is referring to was that of United Airlines Flight 610, a four-engine luxury airliner piloted by her uncle, and Lottie's youngest son, Captain Dick Appleby. In the early morning hours of June 30th, 1951, Appleby was at the helm of the DC-6 plane as it passed over Cheyenne en route to Denver. From there, the flight, which originated in San Francisco, was supposed to head to Chicago. But around 2 a.m., Captain Appleby wasn't responding to calls from the Denver Control Tower. Call after call after call went unanswered. And as you can guess, the plane never made it to Denver. Instead, for reasons we'll get into later in this episode, Flight 610 crashed into the side of Crystal Mountain, west of Fort Collins. Everyone on board, all five crew members and 45 passengers, including seven kids, were killed. To this day, Nearly 71 years later, the crash remains the deadliest commercial aviation disaster in Colorado history. That fact stunned me when I first learned it. The deadliest commercial crash happened here, just outside Fort Collins? It did. And despite all the decades in between, people do still remember it. Or at least, they remember the stories their parents passed down from it. They remember the toll it took on their family. In this episode, you'll hear from some family members of crash victims, including Jane Defina's cousin and Captain Dick Appleby's daughter, Janet, who was six when her dad died. Thanks to an oral history project, you'll hear the recorded recollections of Harold Warren, Larimer County's coroner who helped process the crash site back in 1951. But first, you'll hear me huffing up Crystal Mountain. I was able to hike to the spot where the plane crashed in early June, and remarkably, all these years later, you can still see pieces from Flight 610. There are twists of aluminum and steel, shards of ceramic United Airlines plates and coffee mugs, reminders of a northern Colorado tragedy with ripple effects that span distance and time. I'm Erin Udell with the Fort Collins Coloradoan, and you're listening to episode 32 of The Way It Was, The Crash on Crystal Mountain.
Okay. You got everything, Caleb? Yeah. As someone who writes a lot about local history, I know more than most that finding actual physical reminders of that history can be tough. People die, buildings get torn down, time just beats on. So late this spring, when Fort Collins wreck chaser Ron Miller said he and a mentor wreck chaser of his, Caleb, were hiking up to where Flight 610 crashed, I leapt at the chance to join them. As we approached the start of the hike that June morning, we came upon a man with two dogs. Uh oh. Yeah. Going to the crash site. Crash site? Oh, you don't know about that. There is an air, 1951 airliner crash up on the mountain. I've been up and down this mountain. I've never seen any piece of an airliner. Well, this conversation, by the way, is not that uncommon. Wreck chasing, or aviation archaeology, which is a better way to describe what Ron really does, is not the most well known hobby. As the son of a naval aviator, Ron said he's always been fascinated by planes, but he wouldn't get interested in wreck chasing until the 90s, when he read about a reunion of survivors from a World War II-era bomber crash that happened near Crown Point, a mountain west of Fort Collins. Here's Ron during an interview we did over the phone earlier this year. At the time of the Crown Point reunion of survivors, there was a fellow named Duke Simonia who was a retired map maker and a historian around Glenhaven, and he was putting together a whole bunch of lists of crashes from newspaper articles and um, military accident reports. And since he wasn't he wasn't in shape for hiking, and my objective was hiking, he would provide me with, "Here's a story about this wreck. We'll see if it crosses to the Civil Air Patrol list." Go see if you can find it. So I would go fetch. Mostly what appealed to me was going going for a hike with the purpose of finding something in the woods that's not necessarily on a well-beaten trail. You know, something different than following the fisherman's trail to an alpine lake. What started as a weekend hobby has turned into something so much bigger for Ron. He's since tracked down and trekked to nearly 40 plane crash sites in Colorado and Wyoming with one dating back as far as 1935, when a mail plane crashed en route from Billings to Cheyenne. In the late 90s, he started immortalizing these findings through his website, coloradowreckchasing.com. It lists out a lot of crashes in Colorado and Wyoming, though scavenging concerns and the fact that many of these crashes fall on private land has kept Ron from posting about several of them. Of the sites he's hiked to, Ron said Crystal Mountain has become one of his favorites. He's been there more than 20 times since he started wreck chasing. And because of that, I felt like I was in pretty good hands during our recent hike up there. That must have been terrifying. After reaching the ridge where Flight 610 crashed, Caleb was the first of us to spot a piece of the plane. It was a skinny shard of riveted aluminum. Oh, wow. 
you don't find aluminum with rivet holes for any other reason than yeah. airplane. Wow. And then actually I can see a, a twisted piece of part. Yeah. Right there. Soon, other remnants from the four-engine luxury airliner were coming into view. Boxy steel parts, more twists of aluminum, shards of old ceramic crockery. That's probably what interested me the most. There are these pieces of blue and white dishes with UAL, United Airlines, stamped on the bottom. There's also the handle of a little coffee mug. I should note here that Ron and Caleb never take items from the crash sites that they visit. In fact, if a site is 50 years old and on federal land, it's illegal to do so. Instead, they stick to taking pictures. And Ron, who does some aviation archaeology work for the Colorado Aviation Historical Society, also takes notes for reports that he sends to the society. I left Crystal Mountain that afternoon more invigorated than ever to pen my own report on the crash. Being up there was incredibly powerful. And it left me wondering what it would have looked like and felt like up there in June and July of 1951. I didn't have to wonder long. I will be talking with Harold Warren, who was for many years president of Warren Bolander Funeral Chapel and respected member of the Fort Collins community. This is Evelyn Solo, September the 9th, 1987. Well, that clip was pretty self-explanatory. It's a 1987 oral history interview with Harold Warren, a longtime Fort Collins funeral director. I was able to find the recording in the city's history archive. Harold had a very interesting life, and from the sounds of it, he was quite the character but I was mostly interested in one small window of that interesting life, June and July of 1951. That was back when Flight 610 crashed, and Harold, then the Larimer County coroner, had to leap into action. Uh, in 1951, I don't know whether you remember it or not, but uh, we had an air crash here, United Airlines. June the 30th, 2 a.m. I was called at 6 a.m. on June the 30th, and I went to bed on 10 p.m. on July the 3rd. And on June, July the 4th, I was an emotional, mental wreck. We had 50 bodies, and uh, we had gotten them taken care of when I went to bed on July the 3rd. I did not do it alone, don't take any credit for that, but I had to organize it. Retelling a nearly 71-year-old story is pretty tough, so I can't tell you how excited I was to find out Harold had mentioned the airplane crash in his oral history interview from 1987. I was even more excited, though, to track down one of Harold's daughters, Janet. Janet lives in Colorado Springs now, but she was born and raised in Fort Collins. Actually, she was born in a familiar year, 1951. Okay, are you still there, Janet? I am. Okay. Um, so you were saying that you were three weeks old at the time of the crash? Right, right. 
what do you know the date of it exactly? Um, so it was June thirtieth, nineteen fifty one. So I was born on the twelfth, so that's about right. That that jives. I'm not sure all my stories are right or correct. They're just stories that have been handed down. Janet said she heard stories about the crash throughout her life and for various reasons. Um, we lived in the funeral home, and so that was talking about this kind of thing was just the norm. Um, and our our neighbors um, were the Goodriches, who were my dad's competitors, and so it was the norm for them as well. So there weren't many other children to play with downtown, so. So we thought that was just normal, that your dad was a funeral director and an ambulance driver. And so, yes, we talked about the accident. It was a very stressful time for my dad. Now, he was 38 at the time, and he said, these are all just stories, Aaron. <laughs> he said he had a slight heart attack during this time because he wasn't sleeping much. He was trying to do all this stuff. But he had too much to do, and so he just laid down on the embalming table and took a long nap, which would be very like my father. Um, he, He did. It was not easy. He did work really hard, and um, United was very gracious to us um, after that. My older sister and me, myself, um, they gave us each a savings bond for $1,000, which at that time they figured would pay for four years of college. And afterwards, now, this I don't know if this is true, but this is the story that they did offer him a job to move to wherever United Headquarters were at that point and okay. to be in charge of their, because obviously they knew there would be other crashes. And so he would be the one in charge of that. As you've probably noticed, Janet keeps making sure we all know that she's just relaying stories she was told over the years. She's not sure if that's exactly how things happened. And that's because her dad apparently was quite the embellisher. While we don't know for sure if United offered Harold a job working on future crash sites, we do know there were a lot of future crashes. Commercial aviation, as it turns out, was quite the risky business in the 50s. Um, so you've been to upwards of 40, cra- 40 crash sites. About you 40, had- probably not quite as many as 40. I'm, I'm just kind of guessing. That's Ron Miller again. And that's also me stumbling through a question. So of those, of the ones you've been to and researched, are there, is there one in particular that has really stuck with you or that interests you the most? Um, well, actually, that's almost two questions. Is, is the interesting one is the Crystal Mountain DC-6. And and that's interesting to me because it sort of demonstrates the the state of technology of of airline travel in the 50s and how it was not all that safe. 
um, I don't know if you know this, but in the 50s at airports, they actually had small kiosks where you could buy life insurance for that flight. Things, things in those years were less reliable, including the behavior of the air crew. Um, at the, the, a lot of these guys had been wartime trained, and things like the captain is the absolute master, and some captains would have the attitude that the co-pilot is expected to keep his trap shut except to say, acknowledge that he's put the flaps to the setting that he was ordered to do. Uh, and history and learning has said, that's really a bad thing to do. Uh, in fact, that kind of behavior was the cause of a crash of a 747 Korean Airlines in San Francisco. They had a very senior captain and three other guys with way more flying experience in that airplane watching him crash the airplane because they were afraid to speak up and say, hey, boss, you're flying too slow. We're going to die. And they'd rather die than tell him that he was making a mistake. So we had some of that in the 50s based on World War II. We also had guys who uh, the captains, the captain's authority is absolute, just like a ship at sea. And some guys would do things like shortcutting the route, such as the medicine bow uh, DC-4, and then there was a DC-3 that crashed against Elk Mountain in Wyoming. They were shortcutting, but they'd forgotten that they had reduced their altitude so everybody could breathe, and they crashed into Elk Mountain, killed everybody. Those crashes Ron is talking about are other commercial airplanes that crashed in Wyoming around the same time as Flight 610. One was a DC-3 that crashed on Elk Mountain in 1946, and the other was a DC-4 that crashed on Medicine Bow Peak in 1955. Back then, Ron said it was a lot harder to determine exactly what went wrong when a plane crashed. They, let's see, and then for accident analysis, they did not have cockpit voice recorders and there were no flight data recorders. And so like on Flight 610, it was, it was a matter of trying to weigh the evidence that you see and come up with a theory. For all the reasons Ron just described, the cause of Flight 610's crash is pretty vague, even according to the final report by the Civil Aeronautics Board. Here's what they said. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident is that after passing Cheyenne, the flight, for undetermined reasons, failed to follow the prescribed route to Denver and continued beyond the boundary of the airway in a course that resulted in the aircraft striking mountainous terrain. There you have it. Ron said it's also been theorized that Captain Appleby, in a darkened cockpit, accidentally selected the wrong radio receiver switch. So thinking he was on the right course, he was actually cutting way to the west, all the way into the side of Crystal Mountain. Then there's another, very different theory about what could have caused the crash of Flight 610. It involves, if you'll believe it, classified military documents the Korean War, and Captain Dick Appleby's daughter, Janet Smith. You'll hear more about that, and from Janet herself, after this quick break. Hello there. It's me, Erin, obviously. And I just wanted to pop in here and use this break to sing the praises of a Colorado in digital subscription. If you're a longtime podcast listener, you're probably sick of hearing me pitch this, but 
too bad. Everything we do at the Colorado Inn, including this very podcast, relies on subscriber support. So if you want to support the Fort Collins community and local news, please consider buying a subscription today. As a bonus, if you'd like to prove to my bosses that people actually listen to and like the way it was, you can purchase your subscription by going to coloradoin.com slash podcast offer. All right, back to the show. When I started working on this episode, I'm going to be honest, I had no idea what I was getting into. I just thought it was crazy that Colorado's biggest commercial airline disaster had happened right outside of Fort Collins, and that most people, even myself, didn't know much about it. So we started trying to track down family members of Flight 610's victims. I searched through online public records, obituaries, historic newspaper clippings, and I found some people but I also found a lot of dead ends. At some point, I was hot on the trail, or at least I thought I was, of a descendant of Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mudgett. Mudgett tried to get a last-minute seat on Flight 610, but couldn't, so he stayed in San Francisco a little longer, and in the process, he escaped death. There were a few stories like this that came out in the days after the crash, and I wanted to tug on that thread a little bit more, so I tried to track down one of Mudgett's daughters. I called a lead in Southern California, and her husband answered. No, she wasn't the Mudgett I was looking for, but apparently he was a psychic. He then launched into a reading right there over the phone, informing me that I was a second-level old soul and that this investigation was something I was doing as a way to honor a soulmate of mine from a past life. This person was apparently aboard Flight 610. He also said I was very stubborn, which is accurate. Anyway, this call was not the only strange thing to arise out of this project. Very early on, I found out about another crash theory related to Flight 610, and it hinges on one of its passengers, Merle Parks. Parks was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and at the time of his death, he was serving as a strategic air command officer. In June of 1951, Parks had recently come back from Korea, or at least that's what the Lincoln Star said at the time. And remember, this is when the Korean War is raging. When Flight 610 crashed, amid the reports of bodies being recovered and families being notified, there were also some interesting articles coming out of the Denver Post. Secret documents of great importance have been reported lost in the crash on a United Airlines plane near Fort Collins Saturday, the Post report read. It's within the realm of possibility that the documents dealt with truce efforts in Korea. Lowry Air Force Base officials did confirm that they had agents standing by at the crash scene ready to safeguard any military documents in case they happened to be found. But none ever were. Lieutenant Colonel Parks was found among the crash victims, and so was his black briefcase. But it reportedly only contained personal papers, or that's what an Air Force official told the Coloradoan a few days after the crash. It's these details about Parks and those early reports about missing military documents that Janet Smith, formerly Janet Appleby, 
has clung to over the past 40-plus years. So um, my mom found out about the crash because a bunch of reporters were banging on the door before dawn asking her if she had any comment about the disappearance of her husband's crash. And my mom, my husband's flight hasn't crashed. You're crazy. And she slammed the door on them, and then she (laughs) almost fainted. Janet says she has very vague memories from the time of the crash. She remembers flying to Pennsylvania, where her dad was from. That's where her mom, Dean, told her and Jimmy that their dad wasn't coming home. And, uh, and mom let us know. Of course, I cried. And I was upset that Jimmy didn't cry, but he'd already done his crying because he figured it out sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and him, Dan being an airline pilot, he was gone a lot. So I was kind of used to him not being around. And um, like I said, I only have just a couple of mental vignettes of of interaction with him. Yeah. So... I, I don't think I grieve nearly as much as I would have if I'd been older. Life for the Applebees carried on. And since the crash was such an emotional issue for her mom, the family didn't really discuss it much. But that started to change in the 70s. Janet was in her 20s by then, and some weird things started to happen. She had this random dream about her dad being a soldier in the Korean War. He was marching across a stream and fell in and drowned. Janet said it was strange, since she hadn't really given much thought to the Korean War before. Then, rifling through a cedar chest at the family's home, Janet said she came across all these news clippings about the crash. And there, also on the front page, were reports of the Korean War. These weird interactions with people also kept popping up. Janet said her brother Jim was on a business trip in New York City when he happened to meet an old United Airlines pilot in a hotel bar. And um, they started talking about the crash. And Jim said, well, I guess it was pilot error. And the guy grabbed Jim's arm and started, you know, fake punching his arm. And he said, it was not pilot error. Don't you believe anything that your dad did anything wrong? That plane was sabotaged, and you're crazy if you don't find out what happened to it. Janet said her mom also got a call from a higher-up at United Airlines right after the crash. He told her something similar, that the crash wasn't caused by pilot error, that it was an issue of national security, and that for that reason, he couldn't say any more. By 1975, Janet had thrown herself into researching the crash. She talked to her dad's old pilot buddies and Air Force officials. She filed open records requests, which didn't turn up anything. And in the process, she became pretty convinced that her dad's flight was sabotaged. In the beginning, everybody just felt sorry for us. You know, why are you doing this, really? You know, what are are you trying to prove? And I, I think most everybody that we knew, a lot of dad's friends just thought it was pilot error and didn't consider anything else. You know, pilots pilots are, um, what is it, right brain, left brain, they're they're the ones, they're technical people. You know, they're not conspiracy theorists. The further I got into it and the more I turned up, the more I talked about it, the more people started thinking, hey, maybe there is something there. 
While Janet says she's learned a lot about Flight 610 over the past 40-plus years, she'll also be the first to tell you she's proved pretty much nothing. Much of her theory about classified military documents, the Korean War, and sabotage is based on hearsay. Some early Denver Post reports that didn't really go anywhere, and of course, the flimsiest of them all, people's memories. To unravel all of Janet's theories and findings, I'd have to do multiple podcast episodes, so I'm just going to leave it there. But if you are interested in hearing more, Ron did post some of Janet's writings about the crash on his website. Before our interview ended, I did talk to Janet a bit more about what those initial days were like for her mom after the crash. She didn't remember too much, but she did say that her mom spoke to one other family of a United Airlines crew member who died on that flight. It was Betty Petrovich, the wife of flight engineer August P. Petrovich. They were a young married couple, and August's sudden death made Betty a widow and single mother to their 18-month-old Nancy. And can you believe it? That's the only other Flight 610 family member I was able to track down and interview for this podcast. Nancy Petrovich is now Nancy Sanborn. She's 72, a retired history teacher, and living her best life on an orchard in Sonoma County, California. Nancy was so interesting to talk to, and we spoke for over an hour. She took me through the stories of her parents' lives, and I wanted to start with Nancy's origin story. Well, kind of. I'm going to take you back to even before she was born, when her mom, Betty, was just a teenager. Betty had recently graduated from high school and was working at a defense plant during World War II. She was engaged to be married to a young man, I think she was 19 at the time, and he was a Marine sent to the Pacific and his whole uh, platoon disappeared in the jungle. They never found them, heard from them again. So she was, um, had lost her love then. So uh, she was starting over. And when she met my father, it appears she was only working for a short time before they, they decided to get married. After her first love died in World War II, Betty ran off to California, where she got a job in the San Francisco International Airport's Weather Bureau. It was there, Nancy surmises, that Betty met August Petrovich, a United Airlines flight engineer who everyone called Pat. Within a few years, Nancy came along and the family moved into a tidy little ranch home in Redwood City, California, where a lot of the other United Airlines employees and their family settled down. Then, as we all know, June 30th, 1951 came along, and Pat Petrovich became one of Flight 610's 50 casualties. He was 27 years old. Betty didn't get to grieve Pat's death for too long, though, Soon, a distant family member of Betty's was trying to adopt Nancy, so much so that they were threatening to have Betty, a sudden single mom and widow, declared unfit to take care of her. So my mother was under the gun here. <laughs> In the 1951, uh, it was, you know, it was a little more difficult for single moms, so she realized that she had to get married and have a father for me. 
and that's another whole interesting story. But she married in October of 51. Betty ended up meeting another United Airlines employee, Frank, and they married in another whirlwind courtship in October of 1951. They moved to Sonoma County and had two more kids. Frank adopted Nancy, and they settled into a nice little life. Frank's the only father Nancy said she's ever known. But when she got a little bit older, Betty started to tell her more about Pat. But my mother, every once in a while, would say something like, you have your father's toes. Or once when I was trying to paint a bedroom and I wasn't happy, the paint looked streaky, and I was looking at it, showing it to her, and she was watching me, and she said to me, your father had that look when he was unhappy or discouraged with something. He had that same look. I don't know what the look was, but she recognized things in me, and every once in a while would would point it out. Nancy didn't get much more time with her mom. Betty died young at age 52 of breast cancer. And from what Nancy could piece together, Pat didn't have much of a family to talk to or lean on. His mom died hours after giving birth to him, and he was shuffled between orphanages and distant families' homes. He joined the National Guard when he was just 16 and dropped out of high school to go to Alaska's Dutch Harbor, before eventually serving in World War II and then starting his career with United. Decades after her mom's death, armed with the internet and some basic information, Nancy said she was able to find Pat's old military buddies. Even more years later, she started looking for information on Flight 610. While I was searching the internet, I just threw out a question. Does anybody have any information about the Crystal Mountain crash in near Fort Collins or Colorado in 1951? And that's when I got a response from Ron Miller. And he told me that he was part of the crash chasers group. And they're basically people who like to hike through the mountains, but they've come across these old crash sites. So they kind of made it a hobby to to locate them and write about them. And now we can GPS them. And he, he said to me, if you ever want to visit the crash site, I can take you there. I have the four-wheel drive vehicle. We would hike part of the way in. But, and I just thought, oh my gosh. Years later, while she and her daughter Mariah were passing through Colorado on their way to a family reunion, Nancy said she finally took Ron up on his offer. In the summer of 2018, the trio trekked up to Crystal Mountain. So my daughter and I, uh, Ron said that after they removed everything of importance, they removed the remains, they removed the uh, parts of the plane they wanted to study, they just had a dozer dig a hole and they just scooped all the debris into that hole. But what had happened is over time with rain and erosion, those parts were, were emerging again and being made visible. So that's what it was like when my daughter and I arrived, is we walked into an area that started to have scattered debris around it, and then you could see the trail where it had had gone, of course, a bit. But... Um, there were still pieces of identifiable 
uh, airplane parts. Um, I saw a little piece that said um, a plastic bowl from from the meals on the bottom. It said UA United Airlines, uh, and there was there were pieces of the fuselage, you know, metal. And someone had written, scratched on this large piece, uh, this flight, 610 United Airlines, June 30th, 1951. Um, and some people had, like, written their names that they'd been there to visit. And my daughter scratched onto that, rest in peace, AP, and our initials. So she left her mark there on a grandfather's death site who she never knew. And I never knew, really. Nancy comes back to this point a few times during our conversation. Pat isn't even a memory for her. She never knew him. Her hike up to Crystal Mountain was interesting and powerful, sure. But it wasn't sad, she said. And that makes sense. It's been nearly 71 years since Flight 610 went down in the mountains west of Fort Collins. And as more time passes, its connection to people fades further and further into the past. But like me, Nancy is a history nerd, and her research into Pat isn't necessarily over. Well, like I say, history keeps revealing itself to you, so you can learn. We learn more all the time that even ancient things and but even like world war ii they'll come up somebody will find that there was a trunk in their grandma's attic and now they're cleaning up the house and oh my gosh look what's in here and we had no idea and then of course history keeps revealing itself along that rocky slope on crystal mountain it pokes up out of the ground in the form of twisted aluminum rusty steel panels tiny metal springs shards of plates and mugs To an untrained eye, the pieces might look like junk. To a wreck chaser, they're parts of a plane. And to the people left behind after that devastating wreck, they're part of their personal story. To me, they're history. Reminders from the past, poking out of the ground, so we can learn from them. That's it for this episode of The Way It Was a podcast podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this latest installment. If you're interested in learning more about Flight 610 and aviation archaeology in Colorado, head to coloradoan.com for my latest story on both of them. That piece also includes photos of the wreckage, both from present day and back in 1987, when there were many more remnants visible. There are also snapshots of Pat Petrovich, provided by Nancy. Until next time, history nerds.